This is episode number six with Michelle Tiliakos. Welcome to The Marriage Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Price, international marriage interventionist and best-selling co-author of Success Breakthroughs. On this show, I provide innovative solutions for marital success by focusing on personal development and relationship transformation. Every week, I'll be talking with thought leaders from around the world and will be providing your weekly dose of wisdom so you can catapult yourselves to marital success and true life fulfillment. I ask you to love one another, encourage and support each other, and live with passion. Are you ready? Here we go. Michelle Tiliakos is a doula, birth mentor, mother of four, and wife. She works with expectant couples to avoid unnecessary interventions, and so they experience a birth that is both empowering and magical. She teaches couples how to triumph the postpartum stage with love and ease. Her sense of fulfillment comes from busting myths about birth, from seeing couples thrive and having them recovering at home, nurturing their baby while being nurtured by their own support system. Michelle has personally experienced miscarriage, postpartum depression, hospital and home births, and this led her to the work she does today. She's also co-founder of an organization called In Our Hearts, which creates community and connection through miscarriage, abortion, and neonatal death. Michelle focuses on couples around the world who wish to create the birth they deserve and desire. Her belief is that informed consent and intuition will allow couples to determine their own birthing needs. Michelle, welcome to The Marriage Show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We are very, very lucky to have you here today. I really wish that I had had you 22 years ago when I delivered my son. There were so many unpleasant things that I think I could have avoided if I had known that I had a choice and if I knew the options that I had. And if I had somebody like you to guide me through those many decisions I had to make, I think it would have been a much more pleasant experience. You know, my son ended up being very healthy himself, but physically was very traumatic for me. And I feel like many things could have been avoided and gone so much more smoothly if I had had you in my life. (laughs) So Mm. I'm super excited to have you on the show today. Before we dive in, can you please tell us What is love to you? Mm, Love is a connection with humans. um, And it can be somebody who's really close to you. But I also believe that you really can have love for anybody. And I think if we remove the expectations of what things should be like or should look like or where people should be in their life, if we remove that, we can really find love with anybody. Let's dive right in and start talking about this powerful birthing experience. So Mm -hmm. uh, tell the listeners what a powerful birthing experience looks like. It's such an important time of our lives to have some power and some encouragement, you know, through the birthing process and finding out what our choices are. So I find that a powerful birth really looks like one that's respected. We feel like we have choices. We're confident in our choices and we trust the process and the people who are 
along with us on that journey. So it really can be powerful from anybody who's choosing the natural vaginal birth or unmedicated birth to those who want to accept all the interventions or have a repeat cesarean. It really is one that just transcends love and connection, teamwork, fulfillment, all of that. Beautiful. It sounds it sounds like the birth I wish I had had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mine was was physically traumatic and took mm-hmm. me weeks, weeks to heal from. I am thankful that he my son was was healthy. But yeah, that sounds like a dream. And I've I've talked to so many friends who have experienced just exactly what you have described, but then I've also talked to so many women unfortunately who have also had traumatic experiences whether it was emotionally traumatic or or mm-hmm. physically. So tell us, how can a woman achieve this powerful birthing experience that you just described? I really believe it takes a few different areas to work on. And one is sharing our expectations and our wishes and our desires. And not just sharing that, but actually having them received and heard. And that will be from your partner, um, from your care provider, from your friends, and having a team that trusts in the birth that you want. So having those desires aligned with your care provider, having a partner that understands birth, and most of the time they don't initially, they just are kind of a deer in headlights, right? And having the importance of them support your wishes and having them included in the process. Like they really have a major role in how your birth transforms, right? How it all goes down. So having them on your side, and I'll touch on that as well, but really having them understand the importance of your desires and clear, easy communication. And it happens at home with your partner. It happens with your care providers. It's not a battle to have this amazing birth experience. It's just clear, easy communication as well. Hmm. That sounds really magnificent. I think the extent of my birthing preparation was taking a class at the hospital on Mm -hmm. how to get the baby to latch on if you're interested in nursing. And then with baby dolls, we practiced how to change a diaper. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That was really the extent of, uh, of my preparation. But again, this was 22 years ago. You know what? It's still the same. It's still very similar. Oh, gosh. What a nightmare. Mm -hmm. Gosh, I think it was about 10 years ago or so, I watched a documentary by a TV show personality named Ricky Lake. And she did this documentary on the current maternity system here in the United States versus other countries throughout the world. Again, I wish I had watched this before I delivered because it was shocking. It was terrifying. To, to learn the facts and to see how the system works. However, it did provide hope. And that's really one of the biggest reasons that I wanted to have you as a guest on my podcast is so you could bring hope and education and facts to, to all the listeners because I think there's a lot of information that's missing. But in this documentary, what I learned was just what I saw was terrifying. It was shocking. And I can't imagine that the current state of the maternity system is any better. But again, I wanted to, to bring you on and ask you all these questions. So can you describe now what the current system is like and how it could be improved and what could be improved? Yeah, there's a lot to that, <laughs> to that question. You know, we have access to medical care when we need it. So that's the thing that's right. There's so many things that can be improved. And Right now, what's happening in America, North America, is that cesarean rates are like so high. And when I was doing some research in some hospitals, it was 60, even up to close to 70% of women who were walking 
in an hospital were actually being willed out having a major wound. And if you don't know that going into birth and going into that hospital, you just, that's your chances right there of having a vaginal birth or a natural birth. It's like very, very minimal. So one of my biggest things is knowing where you're giving birth and what you're walking into is so important to what needs, how your birth is going to go down. So that's part of what the system looks like. And I feel for so many women because they're restricted to, or they feel restricted to what their local hospitals provide, what their insurance provides. They feel like they shouldn't or can't spend money outside of the system for the birth that they want. They don't actually even know what their choices are. So that goes to that whole saying is if you don't know what your choices are, you don't have any. And they just go along with the system and they stop questioning like, what is right for me? What does my intuition say? And what's right for my baby and my family? And they just slowly get conditioned into putting themselves aside for the sake of the baby. You know, increasingly women are dying in birth in America and, you know, all the interventions, all the hospitals that we have, I'm not criticizing them for when we need them, but a lot of the interventions are being used unnecessarily and causing harm to mothers. Mm. What you said about having a cesarean, you leave the hospital with a major wound. I don't know that those words are... (laughs) do it justice. (laughs) I had a, I had my appendix taken out 15 years ago or so. And that incision was, I think two inches. And that felt, that felt like a major wound, you know, being gutted essentially Mm -hmm. for a cesarean. I don't think there are any words to describe just how major of a wound that really is. Well, and when I say that it really is it's not just the physical being cut open and sewn up. It's like, it's a wound that really hurts your heart Mm -hmm. because a lot of mothers feel like they failed. A lot of mothers feel like they didn't have a choice. And a lot of mothers now don't know how to move forward. So the wound is, is deep and physically and mentally, emotionally. Yeah, I I can't imagine. Mine obviously was a vaginal birth. I didn't have Mm -hmm. a cesarean, but I cannot imagine the sheer terror and the fear uh, that women feel. I've I've heard different women describe it. And then exactly like you said, there's a lot of guilt and shame because you feel like you weren't enough. You didn't do Mm -hmm. something right or your body didn't perform correctly. And that's not always the case. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think there's a lot more education that needs to be, you know, done with, with people prenatally so that they're aware of, you know, all the options, but also the fact that, you know, there's sometimes there are things just out of your control and it doesn't mean there's something wrong with your body or Mm -hmm. that you could have done better. It's really staggering. You said 60 to 70%. Is that what you said? That's not the average, but in some hospitals, when I was doing some research, it it reaches that high. Mm. So it really boils down to what the doctor feels like doing or, or what they think should be done. And if you have a hospital with a certain group of doctors with certain beliefs and expectations, you're going to see higher rates in some hospitals than others, depending on how they prefer to practice. Is that right? Yeah. And and realizing even your care provider is a huge deciding factor of what kind of birth you're going to have. Yeah. I spoke with a OBGYN several years ago, and she was trained both in Europe and in the United States. And she said, it is a world of difference. Cesarean versus vaginal births is one point she brought up. The amount of medications, drugs, pain medications, Mm -hmm. 
the reasons for cesareans. She said it, it's just really alarming what happens in this country, but she said she was super grateful to have the training in Europe because now she's educating people here in the United States. Mm -hmm. They're doing some things differently in their own practice because of what she has taught them. And she said, unfortunately, much of what she learned in Europe is not even taught here in the United States medical system. And I think that was what was most alarming to her. So she kind of set out to help educate as well. Now, I hear so many people, I heard this when I was, when I was pregnant, even today, I still hear so many people say, you know, just go with the flow, just relax, allow your body to do its thing and just go with the flow when it comes to labor and delivery. So first of all, is this true? Should people just go with the flow? Is this a healthy mentality and a good practice to execute? I think people really mean the best when they say go with the flow, but I actually think it's one of the worst things that we can say. There's a, a certain surrendering we need to do in order to birth our babies, definitely. However, I really feel when people say that it's kind of narrowed down to three types of people. One is they say go with the flow or I'm going to go with the flow when really they're just, they have expectations, but they are suppressed in some way of saying them. Like they're too scared or they're too worried or they feel like their desires or their dreams are just like, yeah, that's not going to happen. So they feel like they're going to be shot down before saying something. So they just say, you know what? I'm just going to go with the flow. The other is that they understand that they want to go with the flow, but they're secretly trying to control it all, like either by writing a very demanding birth plan, or they're just trying to control it in their own way internally. Or there's really the people out there who are like, yeah, I'm going with the flow. I got no expectations and I'm happy with however it turns out. So I really believe that number three is like extremely rare. There's not very many people out there who want to give birth or don't have any sort of expectations. So I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm just saying it's super rare. So going with the flow is not healthy in the way that we suppress our expectations. Like we want something. And so just by saying what your expectations are, you are going to get feedback of, can that be met? Can we talk about that more? Or is that not going to happen? And then you get to deal with what your expectations are, either positively or they've been turned down and that's not going to happen. So you get to deal with that before birth happens. So yeah, I really feel like we need to learn more about what physiological birth looks like so that we have a foundation, a foundation to what our expectations are and what they can be. Yeah. I feel like with anything in life, in order to make a really good decision, you need information. And so you, in that mm -hmm. way you are, you are making an informed decision. And I also think, too, there's I can't remember exactly how the quote goes, but it's something like, you know, plan for or be prepared for the worst, but hope for the best. And I think that really applies here is, is of course, you hope for the best. You have your plan. You want to stick to it, whatever it is, but you're prepared for things to go wrong. So you've at the very least, even if briefly thought about the things that could go wrong, how you want to handle those if an emergency or if something comes up. But then, of course, you want to really focus on and hope for the best. Do you agree? I agree. And the great thing is, as I wouldn't say things go wrong. It's more they're not going the way you expected. Mm -hmm. So it's not that something's wrong. Because when we start saying things are wrong, then we're putting guilt and shame that the mother made a bad choice. Mm. You know what I'm saying? The other thing is, it's really great because even for those people who are planning hospital birth, 
I still talk about, and we explore, what does it look like to give birth at home? Because that can happen. Mm-hmm. Right. And then for my clients who are planning home births, what does it look like to give birth in a hospital? And we touch on it so that if that does happen, or that is the way things are playing out for them, we actually get to, they're not shocked and scared. They know, oh, Michelle told me this, this is what it's going to look like. Mm-hmm. Let's touch on that for just a brief second. Sure. Because I know that home births are not the mainstream, at least not here in America right now. I know that it mm-hmm. is on the rise, but I know that it's not the mainstream. So let's touch on that for just a second. I delivered sure. in a hospital. If I were to deliver again, I would be highly interested in a home birth. But what I would be terrified of with a home birth is exactly what happened to me and my baby when we were in the hospital. And that is the umbilical cord got wrapped around his throat and Mm -hmm. his heart rate dropped to, I think it was 42 beats per minute. And thankfully it was right at the tail end of delivery. So the doctor was able to just with his hands, get my son's head. And he said, on the count of three, you push, I pull, and this baby's coming. And he said, one, two, three, I pushed, he pulled, and my son was out in in an instant. And that's really Mm -hmm. why my birth for me physically was so traumatic because my body wasn't ready to do that. Mm -hmm. But it was too late for a cesarean. So we had to do what we had to do. And thankfully, I had had an epidural. Talk to the listeners right now and alleviate those fears because I know that there are things that doulas and birth coaches and mentors can have on hand in the home for an emergency situation like that. So tell me if a, if a cord gets wrapped around a baby's neck and is cutting off blood supply and oxygen, what can you do at home to ensure that you either get to the hospital in time or get this baby delivered in time? Sure. I just want to clarify too, is doulas actually don't, we're not hands-on in birth. We are literally like there reminding you, grounding you of what your choices are, encouraging you, coaching you, but we actually don't do anything physical or no physical tests or anything like that. So home births can be attended by a midwife. And there's also people who free birth and they have no attendees at their birth. So there's lots of different variations. It's not just home or hospital. It's like care providers in that as well. Umbilical cords, this is kind of one of those myths of umbilical cords are cause for emergency. So I don't know necessarily exactly all the details of your birth. So it's not necessarily applying to your birth, but there are, I would say a huge chunk of babies are born with cords around their neck or a body part. And it's not always a true emergency in the way that the body has this amazing structure and the cord has Wharton's jelly inside. And it's this jelly that actually makes any sort of knot slide. And it is physiologically there to have it work. So babies move around a lot in utero and it's often happens. So going back to the emergency point is in an emergency care providers who are with you at a birth or a home birth, it seems as a variation of normal not a necessarily an emergent situation where it feels rushed. So I had a midwife say to me once years ago, and it was such a great thing that sat with me, is before there's any red flags in a birth, there's a lot of pink ones. So, oh, this alone, we're not going to worry about too much, a heart rate dropping because it typically picks up again between your contractions or your sensations. But that combined along with this, combined with that, this doesn't look so good. And I think we should transfer to a hospital. But off, they're looking for those pink flags before there's a big red one, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, it does. I, I actually love that. Before before you see a red flag, there are lots of pink ones. Never heard that before. That's really mm-hmm. cool. Really cool. Yeah. So, okay. So just alleviate fears of people who might want to consider a home birth. There is technology and there are ways of monitoring the baby's health at home mm-hmm. so that if an emergency arises, you do have time to get to the hospital. There are things that can be done. I just want to just really emphasize that for people who absolutely who you know want to consider it, but are a little fearful for for different reasons. Maybe they've experienced what I experienced. You know, yeah. And it, it just takes a lot of conversations, mm-hmm. a lot of questions, a lot of asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that takes you kind of through the birth, and then that's just part of the process is labor and delivery, right? And then there's mm-hmm. postpartum care. So what type of postpartum plan provides proper support for the new parents, especially if, if this is their first baby? So what can they do that will really provide proper support for them and also healing both emotionally and physically for the mother? It really starts prenatally, looking at what is your life going to be like after baby's here, questioning, do you want to breastfeed? Who do we want over at our house? How are we going to be supported? All of that happens prenatally. It's Well, it doesn't always happen. It's a great time to talk about it because when you're in the depth of it, you don't really want to be like, oh, how are we going to make this happen and work? So prenatally, I always encourage my clients to talk about it. What does it look like? What is an impact of having lots of people over look like when you have your baby? Do you want to breastfeed in front of all these strangers? Most likely we don't. So it's having those first few days up to a week or two, having a routine that makes sense for each individual family. So it's not about doing more postpartum. It's not about having to make more lists or, you know, have a schedule or have a routine. It's just like, let's look at what are the details that are important to us and how can we have those fulfilled? So it's not about mom getting up and cleaning the house and dad making sure that all the meals are cooked. It's really about taking your village and having them work for you. And sometimes that feels a little like, I don't know anybody in my area or my parents don't live close or his parents don't live close. It's looking at, okay, what do my neighbors think? What about other parents at other schools? Like if you have older siblings, you know, how can they help me out? People generally, and I really believe that want to help new families. Like they want to contribute. And it's sometimes the mom who you know, sticks a fork in it and says, no, I don't need your help. So it's looking at like, how do we, how can we have people help us and how can we be vulnerable in letting them help us? Because often we feel like we got to do it all. We got to answer the door with our makeup on and our house has to be clean. And we got this perfect newborn, right? Like it's absurd. It's really just looking at, okay, I don't have to do it all myself. And just taking all that weight off your shoulders, it's not going to be done the way that you want it. It's not going to be done perfect, but you just get to sit there and nurture your baby and your partner gets to nurture you. Like it's a unit. You guys are a unit. And that's how I feel like it should be after, after baby's born is just nurturing, loving each other, getting to know each other, you know? Mm, I love what you said about having your village, having your village take care of you. That's really beautiful. And I think it's true. I I think so many people, especially today, there's this whole mindset that, you know, in order for you to be a strong person, you have to be independent. You've got to do Mm. certain things on your own. Like you said, you know, house is clean and makeup is on and you're greeting people (laughs) at your door the day after you deliver your baby. And For some women, it's very possible. You know, they have a really easy, pleasant birth. Their energy is off the charts. 
you know, and things just went perfectly and they're capable of that. And then there's other people like me who I couldn't sit up. I could not be in the sitting position mm -hmm. for two weeks after, after delivery mm -hmm. because it was so violent for my body. So, mm -hmm. you know, and then there's everyone in between. And my ex-husband and I, we separated while I was pregnant. I think we, I was maybe three months pregnant. And so I can attest to the value of having that village around you who is supporting you because I knew that I would need support, not just mm -hmm. not just physically, but emotionally as well. So I moved back in with my parents. They had a little apartment, kind of like a mother-in-law suite apartment yeah. in their home, and they let me move into that. I stayed there for the remainder of my pregnancy. And after delivery, I truly had that village that you're talking about. I had my so mother great. helping me all day. My dad was there in the evenings when he got off work. My dad would get up in the middle of the night and walk my son, you know, just so I could get two hours of sleep. I had my grandmother who would come at 8 a.m. and stay every day, all day, for an entire month until 6 p.m. Wow. And she would feed, literally spoon feed me while I was nursing. And I would try. I'm like, I, I love you, Grandma. And I appreciate your help, but I, I can feed myself. And she would pick up my baby, put him in my arms and say, no, you have to nurse, so I'm going to feed you. Oh. And she would literally spoon feed me. Like you are bringing me to tears right now because it's just so like, it's so beautiful and wonderful to have that. And the great thing about you, Jennifer, is that you accepted it. Yeah. I did not. Like I... Uh, my first two people came over and offered help, but I'm like, no, I'm good. Mm -hmm. I'm calling a little BS on myself now, but yeah. you know, <laughs> it's like, it really wasn't until my fourth baby was born that like my friend came over and she's like, can I do anything for you? And I was like, I don't know. She goes, can I clean your bathroom? I'm like, okay. She loved cleaning bathrooms. Yeah. So go ahead. I almost gave birth in there, but go ahead. And she was just happy to do that. And so I love that you just accepted it. Like you were willing to let it in and so many of us are not. Yeah, and I think that's one one thing that people need to remember whether it's in a, you know postpartum or any area in life is mm. that yes, it does take vulnerability to accept a person's help or to accept a gift of some sort, but what I have found which is more important than our own vulnerability to put us in a position where we can accept and receive is a little bit of wisdom mixed in there as well. And that wisdom tells us that to accept a gift is essentially giving that person a gift because there, mm -hmm. there's, you know, there is the gift in giving, right? Not just in receiving, but there is a beautiful gift in giving. Mm -hmm. And for me to have denied my grandmother the opportunity to literally spoon feed me, oh my gosh, I would have been denying her gift of mm -hmm. wanting to contribute, which is really denying her love for me. Absolutely. And so I sat there thinking to myself, this is so adorable of her to want <laughs> to literally spoon feed me. I mean, I'm, I'm talking putting the spoon of food in my mouth mm -hmm, <laughs> and mm -hmm. it felt silly to me and it felt it was it was a little awkward and uncomfortable but I very quickly realized that this is her one of her ways of wanting to love me and and Absolutely. to love my baby to take care of me is to be taking care of my baby mm -hmm. and so for me to accept that gift from her is really giving her this beautiful gift of contributing and and one of the ways that she wanted to and so I think for so many mothers out there listening 
whether it's your husband, your partner, your mother, your sister, your neighbor, whoever's trying to help you, give them the gift of contributing. Allow them mm-hmm. to contribute that way because it makes people feel good. It makes them feel part of, of this birth and of this new beautiful life that's that's now here. And so there really is the gift in giving. So accept mm-hmm. it, you know, and it really is, is really sweet. And the connection that occurs between people in giving and receiving that type, that form of gift is, mm-hmm. uh, is beautiful as well. Okay, so now I want to talk about the role of the partner a little bit. So I hear a lot of men, I overhear conversations all the time, whether it's friends or clients or, or whoever, where questions are asked, you know, what type of birth in hospital at home? Do you want drugs? Do you not want drugs? And men will pipe up and say, well, I don't know. It's my wife's body. I'm just going to support her and her decisions because this is this is her body and her experience. So I'm just going to support her and let her decide everything. Is this healthy? Is this a healthy and supportive role for the partner? And the reason I ask this question is because I have personally witnessed the facial expressions of the suspected mother when she hears her partner say this, it's she almost looks defeated and disappointed. Mm. And I've never really figured out why, you know, other than the fact that, you know, many women, they want their partner to be involved and they want to know their opinion. They want to know how he's feeling, what his desires are, what his expectations are and so forth. But I've never really had the courage to say in the moment, like, stop right now and tell me, why do you have this look of disappointment or hurt on your face? So can you shed right. light on this? Is this really a healthy and supportive role for the partner? It's so great because the dad or the husband or the partner really just wants to help and they're just not sure how. So they say like, I'm going to support her however she needs, whatever she wants, I'm going to do it. And it's a downfall in so many ways. One, because it puts, I think what you're seeing there is like a woman being like, I got to do this by myself. I have to make all the choices and I have to make sure they're the right choices. And that's incredibly scary. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. So it's like, if I mess up, yeah. I never thought about that because, you know, I went through most of my pregnancy alone as a single mother. Mm -hmm. I mean, we weren't divorced yet, but we were separated. So I felt, essentially, I felt like a single mother. So I had to make all those decisions on my own, both, you know, prenatally and post. So I've never been in that position. So I never stopped to, to, that's a huge, huge point right there Mm -hmm. for a man to say, all these decisions are yours, honey, because this is your body. This is your experience, you know, for the partner to say that. That is putting a lot of pressure. I it never is, and realized it's not that until now. Yeah, it's not the partner's fault either. Like, there's no blame on the partner for saying this because they generally want the best for their for the mother of their child. But what it is, is I think it comes down to partners feel like they don't actually have a choice, that they don't have a chance to contribute and they don't know how to contribute. So when they say you know, let's just say during childbirth and they, they say, Oh, whatever she wants, whatever she needs, I'm going to have it her way. I'm just going to support her the way she needs. And during birth, you know, she's starting to look like, you know, she's feeling awesome. She's rocking the birth. She feels like just like a million bucks in the way that she's like, I'm superwoman and I'm killing it. And the partner is looking at her like, oh my gosh, she is in so much pain. How is she coping? You know, maybe, maybe she's not doing so good. And there's a question asked, a nurse comes up and says, do you want the epidural? And, you know, the mom's feeling great. And he's like, well, 
You know, he's looking at her with these like sorrowful eyes, like you're in so much pain. And it becomes the downfall of the birth because she's thinking she's doing awesome. And her partner is going, you don't look so good. (laughs) You know what I mean? But really he's just uncomfortable with the pain that she's in. Maybe she's not even in pain. She just thinks she's doing awesome. It just looks like, Hey, I've never seen her do this before. And now I'm really worried for her and maybe she should get that epidural. So what is the best for her at that moment. She's not going to be able to be, you know, like, let's just sit back and have a conversation about it. She's busy birthing her baby. So it's really talking about that beforehand. Mm -hmm. What is his expectations? What does it look like? What does it look like for her? And what's her expectations? And then they can, you know, when they get into it in the moment, if she's like, I feel good, then he knows that, Mm -hmm. you know, postpartum, when starting a breastfeeding relationship, I've seen women who are just like, I don't know what everybody's complaining about. Breastfeeding super easy. And they just put that baby on there and the baby just sucks away and they're doing awesome together. Then there's, you know, women who have this breastfeeding relationship and it starts off very tumultuous, like very uneasy, very, I don't, unsure, worried. Maybe she has cracked nipples. Maybe baby's not getting as much milk as they need or want. Somebody's crying, mom or baby, you know? And the partner just says, you know, maybe you're doing great, but maybe we should just go get that formula just in case. And he's being supportive and it looks like she wants to give up, but she doesn't need or want a way out. Typically. She wants a solution. She wants a solution. She wants somebody to lift her up higher. So having again, that partner be on her side for, okay, I love you. You're feeding our baby. You're doing amazing you know, is there anything you need? How, how can I support you? Let me go get you some food. Like all these great questions to, to show and answer, sorry, to show how amazing she is and how much you love her and how much you admire her. Yeah. I think that so many partners have the best, like you said, the best of intentions, Mm -hmm. but don't really know how to be supportive. Don't know what to say. Don't know what exactly to do. And I'd love your opinion on this, but the only thing I've come up with that that I tell clients is if you don't know what to do or what to say, say exactly that. Say, listen, honey, Mm -hmm. I love you. I want to be supportive. I have no idea what to do or what to say, but I'm willing to do anything that will help you. So what is it that I can do for you? Do you you agree with that or or are you other tips? Sometimes she might not know. Like she, you know, a lot of women experience postpartum blues where they're just sobbing all day. Men, if it's a partner that's a man, it's typically wants to fix something, right? So he's like, here, let me stop you crying. It's broken. Let me fix you. And, you know, let's just go get the formula. But that's not necessarily what she wants or she needs. She might not know what she wants. However, it's a great thing to say, listen, I don't know what you want. I'm kind of feeling lost myself. And let's just be like uncomfortable together mm-hmm. and awkward. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just hold you while we both feel so uncomfortable. (laughs) And just acknowledge that you guys are amazing people. Like you have this baby at home, you're together, you're nurturing each other and your baby's figuring it out too. Like they've never done this before either. Yeah. It's a trial and error. So, you know, this is where I talk about the village and supporting you. Like you don't want to be cooking, trying to figure out, going grocery shopping, all these sort of things. It's just like, no, let's just figure this out together and have all that cleaning my house taken care of by somebody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think even to say, you know what, like, I don't know what the solution is here, but the one thing I do know is that everything's going to be okay, first of all. And number two, 
we'll figure it out as we go along. You know, I I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know when we're going to figure it out, but I do know that we'll figure it out. So until then, let's just enjoy this moment. So let's talk about breastfeeding a little bit. For me, breastfeeding was, it ranks up there with one of the most pleasurable, most joyous experiences of my life. The bonding that occurred between my son and I, and, and I nursed him for a year and a half. Wow. And, you know, the tail end of it, I highly doubt he was getting much nutrition at all. It really was less about nursing. And towards the end, it was more about he was using me as a pacifier to put him to, mm-hmm. you know, to put him to sleep for nap time and bedtime. He was nursing twice a day, right before nap time, and right before yeah. bedtime. And that was it. He basically weaned himself off. But nursing is is probably really, I don't know if I should say the most beautiful experience of my life, but it's way, way, way up there. My heart breaks for women who want to nurse and can't. Mm -hmm. I have a a very dear cousin of mine. She delivered her first baby, only baby at age 40. And her baby, the palate, the roof of the baby's mouth, of her daughter's mouth Mm -hmm. was so high and so arched that she couldn't nurse. And Mm -hmm. my cousin didn't talk about it a whole lot, but I could tell there's, you know, she was disappointed because she really wanted to nurse. And so let's talk about that for for a little bit. Is this something that you help clients through? What resources are out there? What do women do if they want to nurse or if they want to learn how to nurse? And how do they navigate the difficulties that can Mm -hmm. surround nursing? There's a lot of controversy around this right now because a lot of people are saying fed is best. And they're saying I have a, what fed is best. So what does not, that mean? you know, that first it came out that breast is best. So let's encourage everybody to do breastfeeding. And then what happened was a lot of mothers were not, and either they feel like they failed or they couldn't do it or they couldn't figure it out or they were starving their baby. Mm. Then we, a lot of the terms came up as fed is best. So listen, doesn't matter if you breastfeed, doesn't matter if you're formula feed, your baby's fed and healthy and you're okay. So I have a bit of a problem with that. And that is, is I think in the system now is women typically have their babies in hospital and then they're sent home to try and figure out this breastfeeding thing on their own. If they run into any issues, it's like, here's formula. We are not supporting them in the way that they deserve. Like there are, yes, some very structural issues that will not have babies breastfeed. I get that. But there's the resources out there that we're just not using, which is lactation consultants who are trained for hours, like hundreds of hours, I think, on breastfeeding, breastfeeding issues, breastfeeding problems, and how to overcome that. So it doesn't necessarily just mean like you have your friend who breastfed, you turn to them, what worked for them, and here, try this. It's really about you know a lot of trial and error, but sometimes a lactation consultant can come right to you and see you and, okay, let's just have a look. And how does it work? The importance for me in that is having someone come to you in your home where you're comfortable being nude, where you can take off your shirt and there's nothing in your way of getting baby to the breast. Like trying to cover up with one of those blankets when you're trying to figure out breastfeeding is just one, another hassle. So there are breastfeeding clinics out there. There are clinics at the hospital, but it's like, okay, you're panicking already because you trying to get out of the house. You're probably sweating because I've done that trying to, I know my baby's hungry. I'm just start sweating profusely. And we get into a clinical setting where it's not natural for us to be. And we already don't feel comfortable being there with our shirts off. 
having someone analyze us and examine how we're breastfeeding. So I feel that we are just not supporting mothers the way they deserve. And then in turn, we're not supporting babies the way they deserve. Mm-hmm. For working with a lactation consultant, is that a person that you should reach out to and form a relationship with prenatally or do you wait until the time is right? It's so great because I find people don't ask that question enough. And I always encourage people to look out into their community, find out where the lactation consultant is, find out if there's a meetup for moms who breastfeed. And you would, when you go there and you're still pregnant, you're going to see people breastfeeding at different stages, newborns, toddlers, there's different ways of breastfeeding, you know, different positions. And it just becomes like, oh, look at that woman. Look at this person. Look, you know, you're just seeing all different variations. So that relationship is always great to build. Having a relationship with people that want to and will and are breastfeeding. You know, if you're surrounded by people who are mostly formula feeding, it's going to be a little bit harder for you to figure out breastfeeding. So that's a great question is to reach out. Yeah. And you don't have to, you know, create this amazing relationship. Just connect with the person and say, listen, if I have problems, how would I connect with you? What do you provide? And have a conversation with them so that you feel in the moment, you already know who you're more connected with. If you phoned a couple of different people. Mm-hmm. Then when you phone them, they already know who you are. Oh, great. You had your baby. That's wonderful. Let me come over. So so you don't necessarily need a relationship with the person, but you do need to have some resources on hand so that if you are in need of it, you know who to call and when. Yeah. And I mean, when I say not a relationship, you don't have to get in depth. You can just go, yeah, I like this person's vibe and energy, and I know who I'm going to call when I, if and when I need help. Got it. So yeah, the reason that I asked that question is because I I had no trouble nursing, but I've talked to many mothers who have. And even though I had no trouble nursing, I did have a little bit of a traumatic experience in hospital when uh, several hours after my son's birth, I had a lactation consultant come into the hospital room and ask me how I was doing, how nursing was going, and if I needed any pointers or if I needed help in any way. And I said, no, I think it's going really well. And she asked if she could watch just to make sure that my baby was looking like things were going well. And she just wanted to observe to make sure. So mm-hmm. I said, that's fine. That's, you know, that's, that's come on in. That's fine. And she said, yeah, she, she observed for a minute and she said, yeah, I think, I think it's going pretty well, but I would just make one suggestion. Do you mind if I, if I make one suggestion? I said, yeah, that's fine. And she physically grabbed my, without asking, without telling me what she was going to do, she mm-hmm. physically grabbed my breast with one hand, put mm-hmm. put her other hand on the back of my son's head and just shoved me forcefully in t- into him. He was already nursing and he was mm. swallowing the milk and he was, he was just fine. And she said, you just need to get the boob in there a little more. <laughs> And I thought, you know, I, I was 23 years old. This is my first only baby for, you know, first nursing mm-hmm. experience ever. And it was a little emotionally, I don't want to say traumatizing, but it, mm-hmm. it threw me off a, totally. a little bit. And so I get from, from a nursing consultant's standpoint, this is what she does all day, every day. She goes from hospital room to hospital room. But I would have appreciated working with someone who was just a little more gentle, you know, with me and with the whole process. And so that's, that's really what prompted that question is because I feel like, you know, you really want to be comfortable with the person 
that you're going to be in an intimate situation like that with. Absolutely. And I would have chosen, I think, someone who was a little more meek, a little more gentle in their approach, you know, but all these things can throw you off. It's, it's, it's really a very wild and fascinating experience. Yeah. Start you know, even one, que- one question right there that would make a difference to not just lactation consultant, but anybody that's serving you is, you know, she did say, can I make a suggestion? You said, yeah, you can come back and say, are you going to touch me or my baby? Mm-hmm. And that's what you can say to a nurse, to a doula, to your doctor, to, you know, anybody else that comes in your room because then it just prepares you a little bit. I'm not saying it's your responsibility to be doing that. Your care provider really should. However, it might help in in a very, you know, now that I say it in a lot of situations. Yeah, that's because an excellent yeah. point because I never I never would have thought about that. I never no. would have thought because you know when somebody says can I make a suggestion, you think you're going to hear a verbal suggestion. Yeah. You think you're going to hear a statement. Yeah, so I just I wasn't expecting that. But yeah, you're no, absolutely and you're, right. And I hear that a lot. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I go back and I, I look at so many things that happened in the hospital, and I really questioned a lot of the different processes that occurred. And looking back, I realized I had so much more choice than I realized. Had mm-hmm. I been educated and informed and said the right things, I think uh, you know things would have been really different. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to prenatal just a little bit because I think everything you experience while you're pregnant obviously is going to have a huge impact on the birthing, the labor and the delivery. So how will prenatal choices regarding delivery affect the actual birthing experience? You know, just recently I asked a group of women if they agree or disagree that birth will impact various areas of their life. So specifically mentally, physically, spiritually, sexually, financially, and every single one of them agreed. There was only one or two people that said, whether you agree or not, it's going to. (laughs) So we need to question, you know, how do we want that to be impacted? Do we want a positive impact or do we want a negative, you know, are we okay with the negative impact? It kind of goes back to going with the flow, but our prenatal choices are not just about having a healthy baby that's alive. Now, a lot of people get triggered when I say that because they're like, "Why?" Of course, like, of course, I if I want a baby, it's I want it to be healthy and happy. Absolutely, I'm not. You know, if you find yourself seven, eight, nine months pregnant, like, you want a healthy baby. I'm not, you know, dismissing that at all. So what I'm saying in that is, it's not a competition between everything has to be mom, babies either 100% healthy or mom's 100% healthy, or all of baby's needs comes first or it's moms. And if we choose moms, we think we're being selfish. When I don't think that's the case at all is the prenatal decisions that you make on how you want to feel, how you want to feel afterwards will only impact your postpartum period in the way that you have chosen prenatally. So, you know, if we want to have a a scheduled cesarean. We're ready for that, right? And it's going to impact us because we feel powerful in our choice. You know, like we've we've made the choice to have a cesarean, a repeat cesarean or a scheduled cesarean. And afterwards we're like, okay, we're good. We know what we wanted and this is how, how we're going to live life afterwards. So we can have both healthy and happy mom and baby. So it's not just that two people like survive the experience. It's that we 
we coped and we dealt with and we answered the questions we were being asked, you know, by care providers or by us so that we had a postpartum period that is just confident or giving birth that's confident and powerful and trusting. We're just connected and it's a profound transformation instead of feeling like it's all about suffering or surviving or it's traumatic or disappointing. It's making choices prenatally of how we go through birth is going to impact our postpartum 100%. Mm. So it's how we, how we deal with it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how we think of it. Like we don't, we generally don't think of that. All we want, all we're focused on is having a baby that's healthy and happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this isn't even generally go into consideration. It's really great that we ask ourselves this. Yeah. And I think that theme of putting yourself first, you know, mommy, mother, putting herself first over baby at times, that's something that we carry with us forever. And I've noticed that it's in women who have not even experienced motherhood first. If it's that they're married and there's no children present, but they have this partner, women tend to feel like if we, if we put ourselves first, above our partner, above our children, above our work or parents or whoever's important in our lives, then we're being selfish. You know, we're kind of trained in society and I don't really know what the root of this belief is, but we are really kind of trained to put ourselves last. And by the time we get to ourselves, we're burnt out, we're depleted. Mm -hmm. It even causes people to lose respect for themselves and Mm -hmm. self-worth and self-love and self-confidence. And then we wonder, how did we get to this broken place? And it's because Mm -hmm. we put everyone and everything before ourselves. I lived like that as a single mother for years where I would put my son first and then my house and chores and and so forth second, and then everything and everyone else next, and then myself absolutely last. I didn't have hobbies. I didn't go out with friends. My son was my number one priority. And looking back, really, I can say that I have no no regrets, no really big regrets. Yeah. But the one regret, two regrets that I have when I look back at my, my motherhood mm-hmm. is number one, not doing more things for myself. Because I think that had I taken better care of myself spiritually, emotionally, physically, and then just having fun in life, if I had had hobbies, gone out with friends, you know, done some things for myself, I would have reached a level of happiness, fulfillment, and joy that I didn't have, you know, mm-hmm. because because I was always putting myself last. And it really does affect your parenting because I talked to my son a couple of years ago and I said, you know, looking back, what are the things that I did or didn't do that hurt you the most? And, you know, how could I improve as a mother? And, you know, I was asking some some very hard questions yeah. and he was a little intimidated to answer. But he did tell me several years ago, he's like, you're just, you're not fun anymore. Mm. And I was like, and I could tell it was very painful for him to say that to me. But this is a question that I encourage all of my clients, everyone I know, ask your children, what can I do to be a better parent? It might hurt to hear, and it might mm-hmm. be humorous too, because he said, well, you you could have thrown the baseball with me a little more. And I said, are you kidding? I threw my <laughs> shoulder out. Like I actually still still have permanent damage to my shoulder oh. because I threw baseball with you that much. <laughs> but, um, you know, or, or you didn't you know, let me have pizza enough. So there mm-hmm. are some things that are going to make you laugh, but there are some things that you're going to hear that are true and maybe a little bit painful. But it is a beautiful opportunity for you to step up. And, and you realize when you hear a child say to you, you're not fun, 
that it has nothing to do with who you are as a person, your mm -hmm. quality or your relationship with the child. It has everything to do with the fact that you're not taking care of yourself because if you were, you would be a much more pleasant and fun person to be around. Absolutely. That I, carries over to marriage. It carries over into work. If you're not happy, if you're not living your purpose, if you're not fulfilled, I don't care how great you are in your job, your work performance is not going to mm -hmm. be what it could be if you were taking care of yourself. Your role as a wife, as a husband, as a father, as a mother, whatever mm -hmm. it is, you're not going to be the person that you could be if you're taking care of yourself. So it is not selfish. It is actually a to me, it's a really beautiful way to love everyone around you is to take care of yourself so that what you bring to the table is the best version of yourself. That way you can give your fullness totally. to the people that you love, including totally. including your little newborn baby. <laughs> exactly. No, it's I 100% agree. And I rediscover it over and over for myself. So, you know, with mother and birthing and a new mother all through that. And now, you know, my oldest is almost 13 my youngest just turned four, I have this newfound space where I haven't had a baby to take care of in 12 years. Mm. So it's like, oh, I really get to explore again. Like what, what is it that makes me just like so lit up and excited about life that I can come home or be at home with my kids and I have so much energy for them. Like I know when I do things I love or I have passionate conversations like this one or anything like that, it's just like, oh, I'm such a better mom for me. Yeah, totally agree. Okay, what actions on the part of the parents create the easiest possible transition into the new world of parenting? You know, we touched on this already, but it really is setting up their village. So, you know, it's planning on how it's going to work, what it's going to look like, who's going to take care of them while they navigate this whole new parenting thing. And you might be navigating it for the first time, or you're having your second child or your third child and you're navigating what it looks like with more people, mm -hmm. you know? Or for you, like it's your fourth is, is yeah. finally when you have the realization like, okay, I'm going to accept help now. <laughs> I know it took me, you know, I joke with people because it's like, you know, don't do what I did. It took me way too long to figure this out. You know, like there's certain things that I did that I was just like, why did it take me four kids to figure this out? So, you know, that's kind of why I share this now is it's like, it's not that I don't want people to make the choices that I made at all. It's, we've all got our own journeys to follow, but it's about who we're being in it. So are we able to accept help? I was too much of a type A control freak. Now that I've got four kids, I let a lot of stuff slide. You know, I, I really <laughs> you have do. no choice. You have no I choice don't. at that point. <laughs> I totally don't. So it's, you know, postpartum having that village set up for you. It's not about it might seem overwhelming thinking like, oh my God, now I got to set up this village. It's not actually about doing more. It's about having things work for you. That's really it. It's like having the community support you. And like we said earlier, it's people want to support you. Like there's nothing better, you know, as a friend or somebody says, oh, can I bring you anything? And the mom says, yeah, can you pick me up a coffee or can you pick me this? And then we get to go home back home to our families and go, oh, I just saw, you know, Emily's new baby and I brought her a coffee. Like they want to contribute. Mm -hmm. It's like up to us to let them. It's really just having it set up. So all we do is focus on our baby and, you know, having a great birth experience and feeling great can also be 
a way of not accepting help because we're just like, look, we feel great. We can do it all. And then we burn ourselves out too, because we're just like, we feel so high on our hormones that we forget that we should be sitting down and taking care of our babies. So whether it was a great birth experience, ecstatic birth experience, or a negative birth experience, it's like, we all need to have this. And I encourage my families to just lay in bed when they're starting out, laying in bed with just your underwear on and baby with their diaper is one of the most amazing things you can do because your breasts are totally accessible and baby can nurse anytime. It's not difficult for you to be, you know, taking all your clothes off, adjusting your bra or whatever. And you just have that space to be able to get that relationship started and started well. Yeah. The skin on skin contact Mm -hmm. and bonding is, is really beautiful. Yeah. So I just really, you know, train my clients to think about that before birth And I say train them because it's like, I literally, you know, when I'm attending births in person, it's like they have little tests and I tell them, I'm going to test you on this, you know, and we joke about it and it's a, it's a great thing, but it really is, you know, they do think, oh, Michelle said, I have to say yes to someone bringing me over something. So they have this little list beside them. When someone says, Hey, you know, what can I bring you? They're not allowed to say no. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, you know, there's so many countries where, you have multi-generational homes. You mm-hmm. have the great-grandmother, the grandmother, and then the mother and her husband and the new children. You know, America is one of the last countries, I think, to really adopt this. You know, you see it a lot in Italian families, mm-hmm. in Hispanic families. You see these multi-generational homes. And all the studies and research that I've done has shown that multi-generational homes are actually more productive, more successful, more happy. And we don't see a lot of that here in the United States, except from families who have migrated from these countries or or whose -hmm. whose family members have migrated. And, you know, they are a product of that family born here in the United States. But Mm -hmm. that's their culture. That's the way they're brought up. Thankfully, I had a close enough family that I did live with my parents for the first year throughout the remainder of my pregnancy and the first year of my son's life. And then we moved out and got our own home. But Mm -hmm. we remain close. And, you know, to have my parents there for the birth and after for that first year, to have my grandmother come over every single day for a month, you know, it it was really, truly beautiful. And it did take a village (laughs) uh, to, to, especially since I was bedridden for two weeks, it really did take a village to to sustain my son's life those first few weeks. You deserve it. Oh, That's yeah. The thing, is that yeah. We don't realize that we deserve this. Yes, we do. We do. Yeah. You know, we we love we love others in this way and we deserve to be loved and supported in this way as well. My my family's mm-hmm. great. I mean, I was mm-hmm. so 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 blessed. What is your advice for either single mothers or married couples who are having whether it's their first or their fourth and they're overwhelmed because it's their fourth and they have no sleep? What is your advice for parents who don't have a close family like I did, like you did, like many people do. Mm-hmm. You know, families these days are so broken, especially here in the United States. I've got a lot of clients who who say we're having our first baby or we're having baby number three, we're overwhelmed and we have no family near us. So mm-hmm. what is your advice for these families who want help, who need help, but don't have close family? I generally work with my clients to look at what is their resources around? Because we kind of get that, you know, horse blinders on, like I wake up and I go to work and I come home. But there are people at work 
who are excited for you, who would love to contribute to you. It might, and might be that they bring you a meal or it might be that they buy you a gift of some sort that makes you not have to do stuff like there's food delivery or there's grocery delivery or, you know, they're like, or they ask you, what can we do to help? Maybe you don't need more baby clothes, right? So there's that. It's really just looking at what we can do prenatally. Go meet your neighbors. Go talk to the people who across the street who have kids running around on the lawn all the time. You know, if you're in an apartment, people notice that you're pregnant, you know, like talk to them. Mm -hmm. And like I said, people generally want to help. So there might be, if you're not comfortable doing that, there's also things, services that you can pay for, like a postpartum doula where the doula comes and tells you you're doing an amazing job, cooks for you, cleans for you, maybe runs errands, takes care of your baby while you have a nap. There's that resource as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot and it just takes a little looking and a little discovering. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's support groups of different kinds yeah. as well and mommy mommy play groups. And I think even with newborns, you could, even if there's nothing in your area, I think you could start something where you say, hey, let's, absolutely, you know, let's get together for four hours and just take care of each other's children. So each mother can go off into the back bedroom and sleep for an hour while the rest <laughs> of us talk and, and take care of the babies. <laughs> yeah. You know, you just have to get resourceful and creative. And another idea I had too was turning to the elderly. So if you have, you oh. know, an older, you know, 60, 65, 70, 75 year old neighbor, you know, the elderly these days are, especially when they're living on their own in neighborhoods like that, and they're not part of a community of some sort where they live mm-hmm. together, they can be really lonely. And mm-hmm. to adopt a friend like that that's older where they can just sit and watch your baby sleep while you sleep and then come get you if there's a need, a lot of elderly are very, very excited and happy to do that. And beautiful friendships form. And it's good for the baby to have, you know, to have that, you know, older person in their life to hold them and love them. There's a beautiful love that can exist there. And the elderly have so much wisdom to offer to new to new parents as well. So don't be afraid to reach out to elderly neighbors. It can be a really, really beautiful, like an adopted grandmother, grandfather kind of thing. And it's really good for young children to see elderly in their lives as well, I think, too. Absolutely. It's a great idea. Yeah. So how can you eliminate fear from a woman who has experienced a traumatic birthing experience and is now terrified that she's going to experience the same? And just a couple of examples to give you and the listeners is, okay, somebody like me, where the cord got wrapped around my son's throat. He was in a position where he literally had to come out the doctor said within 15 to 30 seconds before death would occur or permanent brain damage would occur. Very, very traumatic uh, emotionally and physically for for me, for my body. Traumatic for the baby too, of course, but he ended Mm -hmm. up okay. Then you have a woman who had planned to have a natural birth. Something happened and she required an emergency C-section or she almost bled to death. Mm -hmm. And you you hear of, of cases like this and you hear people say, oh, if it happened once, it can happen again. Statistics show that the chances of things like that happening a second time are next to none. But after living through a very traumatic experience like that, it can be so terrifying that I've seen many women become so crippled with the fear that they make the decision, I'm never having, maybe I'll adopt, but I'm never having another pregnancy and my own child again, like my own birth child again, because I'm so terrified of of this happening or a blood clot or or whatever. So what can you say to listeners who have had one traumatic experience, they want to have more children, but they're terrified? 
what can you say to them? You know, first of all, like sit with someone and, and do it for yourself is just acknowledge that you had a really horrible time, a really horrible birth. And you were probably scared to no end. Like just sit with that and be so uncomfortable and be okay with it. Like let it just cry, just get angry, whatever you need to do to just have that be in a space where you can accept it. And when I say accept it, it's not like it was right for you. It's not that it should have happened, but just like it did happen and just acknowledge that that's what happened. And I really believe that where the trauma comes in is the stories that we create about ourselves after the experience. Like we weren't good enough. We didn't know enough. I should have done something. I should have seen that. I should have known. And it's like, we're all about blaming and guilt and it just doesn't do us any favors. I typically work with my clients to acknowledge what happened, to listen, to be a safe space, to hear it. I also encourage all my clients that have experienced that is to get their records because their memory of what happened may be different from what actually happened or their memory of what happened was not the same that was written down on the piece of paper. Mm-hmm. So, watch, so this, you, watch that negative self-language and watch that negative story you're telling yourself. Mm-hmm. But also there might be some clues on like, okay, did this really happen? Or what was the choice that I was given? Or like there might be somebody to blame in that. And I'm not saying you want to go to a place of blaming, but just being like, okay, now that I can see what happened, Acknowledge yourself for that you did what you did the best way you knew how at the time. Mm, Beautiful. Yeah. And now that you know different, what choices can you make that are different? So when we go through, okay, there's that fear again. I take all my clients through this process of creating intention for your pregnancy and your birth. How do you want to feel for the remainder of your pregnancy and your birth? And this can change. But whenever we feel that bit of like anxiety or fear or trauma creep in, okay, there it is. I see it starting to like, you know, starting to break down on me. Just acknowledge that it's there and remember what was your intention of where you want to come from when making your next choices. It's really about not creating yourself to be isolated or confused or upset or worried about any upcoming pregnancies or births. It's about filling yourself with the intention that you created. So when I say that, I mean, coming from a place of calm or confidence or power or, oh my gosh, there's just so many great ones that I've had people create. And it sounds a little bit hokey, but when they come and they go, I get to say, hey, remember, you've got fear talking here. What is it that you want to make your decision from? Oh, if I was making a decision from being calm, I would make this choice instead of if I'm fearful, I make this choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they say that we either think, feel, and behave from a place of love or fear. Mm-hmm. There's no in between. We're, we're mm-hmm. either in a place of love or in a place of fear when it comes to the things we think about, the things that we feel, and the decisions we make. I like that. So if I were in a state of pure love, what would I think? If I were in a state of pure love, how would I feel? How would I mm-hmm. behave? How would I react to this? That's really great. I love that. Yeah. And it sounds it sound like if you're in a place of trauma right now, you're going to be calling BS on that because you're just like that. You can't. Right, right, but right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you've had a traumatic birth or you've just come out of it, you're going to be like those people don't know what they're talking about. Right. But it's really like 
that's what I have to do with my clients is explore. Okay. Where is this coming from? What does it look like? Where, you know, and healing that. And so many families find so much healing in birthing the way they wanted for subsequent births. Like they're amazed with their power and their strength and their, you know, their ability to do this. And I just want to also touch on when they have a traumatic birth, partners or husbands, they also experience that because now not only are they worried about their baby, if the mother of their child's hemorrhaging or going in for a cesarean section, or they're worried about their baby, they're also worried about the mother. Like I might lose two people here. And then themselves, you know, like, because I talked to a father and his wife was taken in for emergency C-section. She was bleeding to death. She was bleeding out. Something happened with the placenta. It ripped or something Mm -hmm. and she was bleeding to death. And thankfully it was, you know, one week away from delivery. So the baby was fine. Mm -hmm. But he said, yes, he was afraid for his wife's life because she was bleeding out. But he said, you know, and, and for months he felt so much guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. But he said, Jennifer, I sat there and I was worried about myself. How am I going to be a single mm-hmm. father? How am I going to, because mm-hmm. this is their third child. He said, how am I going to do this? And so then there's all the guilt and the shame that come along with that as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just acknowledging that partners can, can have this too. Yeah. So to wrap it up, the mm-hmm. difference between a doula and a midwife, a doula is there for education and support. And a midwife is the one who actually has their hands on the mother, on the baby and in the situation, correct? Yeah. So a doula will touch their clients because we're putting pressure, we're doing counter pressure, we're, you know, rubbing her back, we're stroking her hair, whatever it is she needs. It's like there, we create that connection. A midwife has a lot of documenting to do, a lot of writing down what's happening, what they're seeing in a medical sort of way. And there's a couple different midwives in America. And some of them are midwives with a hospital or they've been trained as a nurse midwife and they have more of the medical thinking of birth. So they're working with a hospital. There's other midwives that work. I'm not sure if it's called lay midwife in the US, but they're basically, they don't believe in the medical aspect of it all, that they really trust that birth is a physiological and normal event in a woman's life. Those women still have things to document and they still have heart rates to check and they still know how to deal with emergencies. However, they might be a little bit more hands-on and able to connect with the mother. Doulas really help women and families. They help the partner to stay involved with the birth and have them be the main support person. We just, you know, make them look good. And (laughs) we're there to help families question what's right for them. We help to educate them. We give them articles. We don't make choices for women and we don't do any medical advice for women. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. I wish I had had all of that 20 years ago. (laughs) I I know it was, I know it existed. I just didn't know about it at that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was very naive, very naive. Gosh. Before we go, I have three Quick questions for you. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Number one, what is your favorite book? So if everyone in the entire world were to take this book recommendation and go read this one book, what book would you recommend? It would be Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself, How to Lose Your Mind and Create a New One. And it's by Dr. Joe Dispenza. Oh, one of my favorite books. I absolutely love it. And I love his meditations or the one, The Blessing of the Energy Centers. I absolutely love it. And I recommend it to just about everyone I know. So that's, (laughs) I agree with you. It's one of my favorite books. It's amazing, amazing. Okay, second question. What is your favorite way to show love and care to yourself? 
This actually takes a lot of practice for me. And it's really going on letting go of what I expect of people and of myself and just accepting things the way they are. They don't have to look a certain way to have me just know that I'm good at what I'm doing and let all the other things just fade to the side. So it's just a practice of recognizing that I need to let go and observe and be appreciative of what's going on in my life. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Be present and mm-hmm. gratitude is the best attitude. Love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Last question. What is one action from human beings that you would like to see more of in the world? Just everybody doing what they love because if they really look at what they love to do and who they love to be, if everybody could just have access to that, we would be making differences everywhere. We don't have to solve everything. We just have to be really good at what we love to do. Wow. Michelle, you've given us so, so much powerful and beautiful information today. Thank you so much. Uh, How can people learn more from you? I have a website called mypowerfulbirth.com and that's where everybody can get a hold of me. Beautiful, beautiful. Doula and birth mentor, Michelle Tiliakos. Thank you so much for spending time with us today on The Marriage Show. And thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you everyone for tuning in to The Marriage Show. I really appreciate you being with Michelle and me today. If you love this episode as much as I've loved making it, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a five-star review. That will allow us to inspire even more people together. And if there's someone in your life that would benefit from this episode and Michelle's wisdom, please share it with them today. You can text it, screenshot it, or email the link. Let's change lives together. Let's spread the love. And don't forget to tell me who you would like to see on this show. So find me on social media, either Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, and give me your suggestion on who you'd like me to interview. I really would love to hear from you. And for everything that Michelle and I discussed today, you can check it all out in the show notes found at themarriageshow.com. And you can listen to all of my other episodes there as well. Until next time, love one another.